Now we're going to start 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Just by way of explanation, there is a heading over on 12 and not on uh, 13 here. So. <laughs> Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in this, by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And I'm going to be reading from Acts 17, verses 16 to 33. When Paul was waiting for them, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Greek-fearing Greek and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this blabberer trying to say? Others remarked, he, sees, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the area. <laughs> I just asked uh, area pagus. I had just asked Mike how to say that. I couldn't get it. <laughs> uh, where they said to him, "May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting?" You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I was walking around, and I looked, carefully at, I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men 
that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact place where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has sent, for he has set where, where to repent, and he has set the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of all this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, at that Paul left the council. We're, we're covering off, there's a lot of meat in this passage again. I, that's one of the things I love about the book of Acts. There's just so much content in it, but we're not going to get to all of it. And there's a number of different ways we could go. And where I was hoping to go with this, initially when we planned out the series, is somehow ended up in a different place. Initially, the plan was to look at the sense of spiritual battle that was at work in the early church. And I think that's still present in the story, but I kind of morphed into looking at how do we share faith and the culture that Paul is sharing faith in. And so if there's other parts that you want to know about or have questions about, please just text them and I'll be happy to answer them. Uh, I answer the questions Monday night online and uh, be happy to do that. Now... When we read the book of Acts, we see some amazing events where the Holy Spirit moves in amazing ways. Sometimes even thousands of people are coming to faith. And as the church expands, the gospel message is farther pushed out farther and farther from Jerusalem. Today's scripture, again... Um, is a story of that message continuing to push, push outwards. And like I said, there's a lot we could look at, but I want us to focus a bit first on the issues that Paul faces in Athens. And then his ministry, his sharing of his faith, we're going to look at, and see what we can glean from Paul this morning to challenge and encourage us as we seek to share faith. Now, initially as we read... Uh, the results are not always as sensational as they were at other times when thousands came to faith. And I think uh, today's passage that we read in Acts 17 when Paul's in Athens is a great example for us of the reality of sharing faith. Not everything is going to be that Pentecost experience. There's just the hard work of being disciples in the world. And I think Paul in Athens is a great example for us to explore how we share faith. 
Now, that being said, I do wonder with passages like Paul in Athens in Acts 17, if we can kind of be tempted to dismiss it at times as a nice historical recording of the early church, but really not as relevant to us. Maybe relevant for others, but not for us as much. Why? Because a large part of the underlying issues in Athens is idols. Now, how many of you have idols sitting in your house? Neil, you've got an idol. Thank you. You're the only one with a TV, apparently. But thank you for the honesty of your confession. I appreciate it. I thought maybe it was a board game thing that you had. <laughs> if you don't know, uh, if you want a good board game recommendation, Neil's the guy to talk to. Now, if I checked, many of us do not have the kind of idols that represent foreign deities in our house that we worship on a regular basis. And I hope that's not the case. But Neil's got something that we're going to get you right away. I think there's still idols today. I remember growing up as a kid and being taught about the Bible stories where there's idols. Stories like the golden calf. And the number of times Israel turned to idolatry, taking on the practices of surrounding nations and so on, and I was always left thinking, why would they do that? I wouldn't do that. I mean, just a few chapters before the golden cow, God's parting the waters. Like, don't they get it? And it's really convenient for us to read these stories where we can read through a few chapters and cover off months of history. But I just remember thinking, I would never worship some man-made statue. I think some of us look at these stories and shake our heads saying, not me, wouldn't do that. And I hope that's the case when it comes to statues made to foreign deities, that we wouldn't do that. I think we're thankful we're people who don't worship idols. Now, you already know the but, because Neil dumped it already and got on it already. We're thankful that we are people who don't worship idols, but I think sometimes we forget we don't need a statue to put your faith in something man-made instead of God. Maybe we don't use statues anymore, but we still face the temptation to put our faith in our own creations, our own abilities, our own knowledge. So whether it's before we come to faith or even still today as believers, idolatry is most, idolatry is most likely a reality in our life in some way or form. There are things that we have or still do that we elevate above God. We won't submit these things to Him. We hold them outside of our relationship with God, saying they're not connected. One of my practices of faith is after I read Scripture every day, I stop and I pray the Lord's Prayer. And I always get to the spot of, give us this day our daily bread. And I have to rephrase that. 
in my mind every time, help me not to take for granted your provision of daily bread in my life. Because I live in a world where I'm employed and now my wife's employed and we have two incomes now and despite the price of gas and groceries going up, I can go to the store and I can buy whatever food I want. And I can eat as much food as I want. So on some level, to say, give me this day our daily bread, it's kind of a, <laughs> not that I need that, God, because I've got it taken care of. I can hold God's provision in that prayer outside of the reality of my life if I'm not careful, because I'm good. I can root myself in my knowledge, in my, in, in my financial situation, or any number of things. I just don't submit these things to him. What are you rooting your identity in? What do you take pride in? Or what do you just keep separate from God? If Jesus is the king of our lives, then all that we are is to be submitted to him. All of us is under the reign of Jesus, the king of our life. Anything we hold back from Jesus, the king, anything we root our identity in separate from Jesus, is in reality an idol in our life that we're holding on to. We're letting that be the Lord of our life in some sense instead of Jesus. This is really important for us to understand so we can better engage with the text today. I also think it's important for us to wrestle within our own lives. What are the things we put our trust in instead of God? What are the things we value more than the grace of Christ? What are the things we feel we can't live without? And if your first reaction is, oh, that's not my problem, you need to stop and actually take time and reflect. Don't just gloss over and say, I'm good. Because I would say pride would be an idol in our culture that is very prevalent. I think our knowledge, well, I know all the right things, can be an idol that can get in the way of a relationship of humility with God. We can't bury our heads in the sand and ignore that the reality that there are many things in this world of our own creation that would pull us away from God if we allow them to. Hopefully we give up a lot of these things when we come to faith. However, we live as kingdom people in a world that rejects Jesus. We are the diaspora of God's kingdom living in the world. We're the people living in a world that is not ours right now. Because we're of the kingdom. Not the things of this world. And we are living in a world that worships other gods than the one true God. Elevating them above all other things 
whatever they may be. And there are plenty of gods in our world, even for those who proclaim they have no God. The things individuals in the world find their identity in other than Jesus are often where you can find what they truly worship in life, whether it's a physical idol or not. All physical idols were is something that represented the fantasy and wishes of those who created them. You don't need a statue to worship those things still. And when we live in the world that worships those other things, and we see this in Scripture with Israel all the time, we're tempted to hold on to those same things because they're common in the world and we're engaged with them. And we give in to that temptation sometimes without even realizing it. Understanding this reality that idolatry goes beyond statues to the things we create in our lives and hold on to in our lives is important to understand as we engage with the Scripture today. The Scripture passage starts with Paul having arrived in Athens, and he's awaiting Silas and Timothy coming to join him in Athens. And we read that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And that sense of being distressed is really uh, the sense that he's burdened for the Athens since it's full of idols. He's not angry with them. He's not mad at them. He's burdened. And the burden isn't the idols itself, themselves. For Paul, the idols are nothing but something created by humanity. He's burdened for what the idols represent. A lot of people putting their trust in something of their own making, putting their trust in these false hopes that they create, not realizing that there is someone they can put their faith in instead and have real hope, that they can put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe Paul's also looking at these people he's burdened for because he knows he's been one of them. Paul was a Pharisee. A group of people who tried to make the Jewish people righteous by creating an extra set of laws that were even more stringent than the laws that God gave Israel. They were a people who rooted themselves in power and control and who pretty much came to idolize that power and control and the laws that they made. Paul's burdened because he gets what it's like to put your trust in something other than Jesus and he knows how empty that can be. And yet how we can convince ourselves that it's all good. And I think for us today, it's very easy for us to see the world as us versus them. Even our language of the, of the world can be polarized as believers versus unbelievers. Christians versus non-Christians. I don't believe Paul sees that kind of polarization in Athens as he's distressed and burdened by all the idols he sees. Paul sees these individuals, I believe, as people loved by God and in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And perhaps Paul sees himself in them 
as a sinner in need of saving who was found by Jesus. And if we're going to be a people who are going to live out the Great Commission, the call to make disciples of all nations, well, we need to begin with that same humility of heart we see in Paul and stop approaching those around us as us versus them. Not as, well, we're better because we have Jesus. Not as we're smarter because we know the truth and they don't. Instead, we need to see those in the world around us just like us, as sinners who are in need of grace, sinners in need of a relationship with Jesus Christ, sinners who need to stop putting their hope in their own creation instead find the true hope offered by the triune God. We need to realize that they're in the exact same boat we were in before we found Jesus. And that's the foundation of discipleship in some ways. That's the foundation of the church, that we are all equal before Jesus. We're all loved by Christ, and together we all share in the hope of Christ, and that Christ came for the whole world that we're all in that same position. Some of us are just at different spots on that journey. Some of us have embraced that hope, while others are still not there yet. And I hope that with that sense of humility, I hope we don't see ourselves as us versus them. I hope we don't dismiss those in the world different than us. But I hope that like Paul, we have a burden for those in our world who are putting hope in something other than Jesus. Who are putting hope in themselves and their own wishes and desires and their own creation. Their own knowledge, their own wealth, their own power and influence. Their own joy and pleasure. I hope we have a burden for those who are rooting themselves in false hope. I hope we care for those who've turned from God. I hope we care for those who reject God and even those who mock God. For they too are sinners needing to be saved by grace. So Paul has this burden and what is his response? He takes time on a daily basis to interact with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. But also he goes into the marketplace with those who frequented there. He's really covering off his basis. Talk about a range of people. Because he was burdened for all these people. He wanted to see them come to know Jesus. Whether they were worshipping idols or were God-fearing and just didn't know who Jesus was. No matter where they were on the spectrum of faith, Paul was burdened for them. And wanted to talk with them. Not really a major strategy there. No big plan. Just go and be with people and talk to them. Now, the rest of the passage focuses on his discussions in the, with those in the marketplace. And we see some strange groups mentioned there that uh, we might not recognize anymore, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, these groups might not go around using these names anymore, but their belief systems are, are not foreign in our world. They're still very much around today. Same content, different name. 
the Epicureans held uh, that the world was created by accident. And that if there were any gods involved, they're uninvolved in the world. Anybody heard that in our world before? World's created by accident? And the goal of life is simple. Pleasure and happiness. The Stoics were more rooted in the physical, material world and the understanding of it. That we can understand everything with our knowledge and that's enough. And they essentially rooted themselves in knowledge and what we would call science. God at best are the principles that everything followed to function. So in, in their mind, gravity would be God more than what we see God as being. There's no spiritual reality in the world. It's just physical. There's no evil, and everything that happens is just what is supposed to happen for the good of the world. For happiness, all you need to do is live a good life. And people are happy when they depend on reason and doing the right thing. They never seem to really address who decides what is reason and what the right thing is. That's always the problem when people say that kind of thing. Now, these two philosophies could jump 2,000 years ahead and be just as relevant in our world today. Yet each puts their faith not in God, but humanity, in human pleasure, in human rationality, in human understanding. And these philosophies may not have had statues, but their philosophical idols are just as large and important to them. Just like our own philosophical idols in our own lives can overshadow everything else. There are people who claim to follow Jesus, but they make it more about wealth. If you have enough faith, you will be rich. Or about health. If you have enough faith, you will be healed no matter what. We merge these philosophies of our world and try to make them Christian. But don't be fooled, they're idols just the same. These are the people in the world where Paul is ministering. These are the people we minister to today just as much. That you have conversations with in your neighborhood and in your workplaces and in the schools. And we can find ourselves arguing, being polarized, or just avoiding them because their views of life and faith are so different than ours, we just don't want to have that conversation anymore. But that's not Paul's way. He spends days in the marketplace talking. And the type of discussion that he's having is not a debate or a fight. It's a conversation he's having with the goal of dialogue and understanding. Okay, that might be a little strange in our world. We're much more used to the debate and argument and everybody just trying to say their point of view and not hear the other person. Right there is something we can learn. Having conversations for understanding and dialogue and value of the other. And as Paul's discussing, sharing, talking, engaging people and talking about faith and life, about Jesus and the resurrection, we see three responses to what Paul is sharing. And we see these three same responses in the world today in people. In fact, we each at some point may have experienced being one of these responses ourselves. 
And we see these three responses summarized at the end of our passage in verses 32 to 34. When we read, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So, what are the three responses? I'm going to use a model from evangelism that some groups use called the red light, green light model, where they use the, the idea of a red light, yellow light, and green light to describe our responses. So the first response are what some called red light people. In these verses, these are the people who sneer at what Paul says. They dismiss it outright. They don't care. They don't want to engage. They're going to mock him and belittle him for what he says. We see a lot of that in this larger passage. We see the sneering, mocking, troublemaking. They put up, these sort of people put up a wall when you talk faith, and they just reject it. At best, there is no traction or engagement. At worst, it leads to you suffering or being hurt in some form. Those are the red light people. I suspect many of us can envision people that we know that are red light people. And it makes us sad. I hope we're burdened for those people that they're so closed off. Sometimes because they've been hurt by the church or people in the church. Often there's underlying reasons for that hurt. For why they're shut down. The second response, people are called yellow light people. These are the people who are going to be curious and want to know more. They're not buying in, but yeah, let's talk. They're not committed, but they're engaged. They're curious. They're willing to discuss. And we see them in this passage. They wanted to learn more. And then there's the green light people. The ones who are just ready and at that spot of making a commitment of faith. They're now at the place where they're willing to take a step into a relationship with Jesus and become his disciple. We're told in verse 34 that some became followers of Paul and believed. They list a couple by name and mention there are a number of others. All these days and in the marketplace, and it's not an overwhelming reaping of souls for the kingdom. But this isn't about counting numbers. This is about sharing God's love and grace with those who need it and having a burden for them in our heart and wanting to engage in that relationship. Whether it be two people or a thousand, every person coming to faith in Jesus is a miracle. Now, I mention this model because some of these approaches to evangelism will say, you know what, you need to really be strategic in your outreach. You need to focus on the yellow light and the green light people. Because they're the ones that you're going to get a response from. Just ignore the red light people, they're not worth your time. And I've been in evangelism training that said exactly that to me. You write them off. They've made their choice, you ignore them. They can change their mind later on and come around, but you don't put your energy into them. This approach only wants to show fruit for their efforts. And the people I know who take this approach regularly proclaim numbers of faith commitments that they led to faith. They'll come back, I led 35 people to say the prayer. I let 110 people to say the prayer. It's almost a competition. And everybody goes, yes, that's great. But i got to tell you, I struggle. I struggle so much with that approach. 
I did kids ministry for nine years. And I got to tell you, I, I had parents coming to me, Mike, it's your job to make sure my child says that prayer. <laughs> You're going to be so disappointed in me. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's actually on you, not me. I'm here to support you. That's what I would actually say back. And I'm willing to help resource you and equip you to do this. I want to walk alongside you, but you love Jesus. This is on you as a parent, first and foremost, I'm here to support. But the point I want to make about my being in kids' ministry was, I'm six foot three, an unmentioned weight. Right? And so if you have that person walk up in front of you and say, you better say this prayer or you are going to burn in hell, I got to tell you, I could have a hundred kids every Sunday saying that prayer. Couldn't I? I can get people to say a prayer. But nowhere in Scripture am I called to make converts to Christianity. And we have gotten off track at the church if that is our goal. Now, I believe people making an intentional choice to follow Jesus is extremely important. Do not get me wrong. But our call is to make disciples. Not just get people to say a prayer, but to get people to enter into a journey and a, a journey that involves a relationship with Jesus Christ. To want to follow Jesus, to learn who Jesus is and become more like Jesus, to yield their life to them. And I know that might upset somebody that I'm saying this. There's churches in North America that would shout me out of the church for saying this. Because it's all about the numbers. But when it comes to Jesus, it's all about the relationship. And when we see Paul ministering, I believe it's about the relationship. Paul in this passage doesn't take that approach of just counting converts that are easy picking. He doesn't write anybody off. He doesn't follow our modern evangelism strategies to maximize the numbers and have the best ratio of, hey, I talked to 50 people and 45 said yes, praise the Lord. He doesn't do that. He actually engages those red light people in our world. Paul will engage with anyone and everyone because he has a burden for those who are not yet following Jesus. It's not about the numbers. It's about the relationship. He values each person just as God values each person. He sees the negative responses, but Paul doesn't shut them down. He doesn't just walk away. He doesn't shut anybody out. He does everything he can in this passage to relate the gospel message to those who are gathering around him and listening. And just because somebody is saying no to faith right now doesn't mean he or she is not impacted by the witness of a disciple who loves them in action and engages them in a faith conversation. All it takes for a red light person to become a yellow light person open to the idea of faith is for their belief structure to fall down and to fail them. That's all it takes. 
And when our belief structure is rooted in our own creation, yes, it can have a powerful hold on us, but I believe every human constructed belief system will fail at some point because we are sinful creatures and imperfect people that are in need of grace. And at that point, when a person's belief structure fails them, what they've rejected, I believe, can come back to them. And they can see with a new light. And it can challenge them, and it can encourage them, or even lead them to a place of seeking the one true God. One of my favorite ministry lines, lines that I use as a pastor is, it's not our place to say no for people. And as soon as we say no for someone, we are polarizing the conversation. You've heard me talk about polarization over the past months. It is a poison in our world. And it can be a poison in the church. And it can be a poison in our ministry. If we are saying no for people, we are creating divides that are not meant to be there. We have been placed in this world as sinners saved by grace to help other sinners be saved by grace. We have been placed in this world as people in relationship with King Jesus so others can come and know the reign of King Jesus in the world and in their life and to find the hope that that offers in a broken world. Now, let's get back to what Paul is doing. I want to put a few things Paul does. First, his witness is both in action and words. He's there repeatedly building relationships. His discourse with others is not hostile. It's one that connotes value for the listeners. He speaks the truth he holds to. And whatever he's doing, it's showing in both his words and his actions. Paul's not just there to get a check mark on a box. He's there because he values people and he wants to make disciples of Jesus. In fact, in verse 34, we read that some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. This is not saying that they made Paul their God. Rather, they became his students as he discipled them. We're called to make disciples, not converts. Second thing Paul does, he speaks to the culture he is engaging most notably in a place full of idols, he identifies the altar of the unknown God and uses that as leverage to indicate who the unknown God is. That the God who sent Jesus, the one who made the earth and all in it, and is the one who gives life to all, that that's who they should be worshiping. That that God is no longer unknown, but known and been revealed through Jesus Christ. And he uses this approach to challenge idolatry. And call people to account for misguided views and desires to see them turn to the one true God. He doesn't water down the gospel truth to make it more appealing. He doesn't add or subtract parts with, that Scripture teaches. However, he does communicate in a way that is relevant to those he is speaking to, that understands who they are and is rooted in relationship. And third, he doesn't worry about what others think. And maybe this is the biggest idol the church deals with today. We worry too much what the world thinks. Maybe our idol is our precious freedom, which I value. Don't get me wrong. 
But there's more to this world than freedom. We're told we're going to expect persecution at some point. And yet we try to avoid it. Are we willing to avoid that at the cost of sacrificing the gospel message? Because we're worried what people might think about us, that they might persecute us or insult us or belittle us, or that our co-workers at work might think, well, that guy's a nut job. Is that what we're worried about? Because, folks, we are nut jobs to the world. That's who we are. We're the holy nut jobs in the world. What we believe is crazy. We believe God came to earth as a human, died on a cross and rose from the grave, went to heaven and is going to come back. If you're going to put your faith in your own wishes and interests and desires, that's crazy talk, right? It's foolishness to the world is what Scripture tells us. But to us, it is the saving grace of God. So which one do you want to be? A part of the saving work of God or somebody fits in with the world of a bunch of people who are putting faith in their own knowledge and interests. We're too worried about what people, how others perceive us if we speak about the gospel. And if that's the case, I think you just found one of the idols in your life, your reputation in the world. Paul's identity is rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ and that Jesus who suffered and died for him has called him to follow him and that may involve hardship and insults. Ultimately, what Paul does is advocate his understanding of God in word and action. He lives it out. And he desires to put each person in a place that they need to respond to what God is asking of them. That's all God is asking of us. God's not asking us to make decisions for people. He just wants us to put the information there for people so they can make a decision about Jesus. Sometimes the response will be a red light, sometimes it'll be yellow, sometimes it'll be green. But that's the person's response to the Holy Spirit. We're not the ones who convert people to following Jesus. We lay out the information, the person makes the decision in response to the Holy Spirit. Not to you. The question is, do you offer them, offer them the opportunity to respond? Our role in sharing faith is to give people a chance to respond to the gospel of Jesus. When we focus just on conversion and not on discipleship, when we focus on getting the response that we want and not letting that person choose on their own, we're starting to blur the line with coercion. One of my favorite verses is, perfect love casts out fear. And yet too often we've used fear to lead people to the love of God. That doesn't add up to me. So our job's twofold bringing people to the place of responding to Jesus. And if they make that decision to follow Jesus or explore more, to walk with them and help disciple them once they make that decision. We started off this morning talking about idolatry, a real issue in Athens, and a real issue in our world today. 
that might be an issue in our lives today. I want to encourage us as we finish off the message, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. I just want to share this passage from Hebrew 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. My friends, let's not grow weary and lose heart. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and run the race before us, throwing off the idols and distractions of this world so we can serve our King and help others to come to know His love and grace. Amen.